Today on the Show Me Institute podcast, Susan Pentegrass is joined by Hannah E. Myers. Hannah is the director of the Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute. They discuss her recently published work titled A Policy Playbook for New York City's Next Mayor, Growth, Opportunity, and Safety, available now at manhattaninstitute.org. For more Show Me Institute podcast, visit showmeinstitute.org. Here's Dr. Susan Pentegrass. Good morning, Hannah Myers with the Manhattan Institute. I'm super excited to talk to you today about a subject that I just can't seem to get a beat on. I can't unravel. It is something that is so perplexing to me, which is um, what to do about crime and what to do about public safety. I know that you and your colleague recently wrote a piece for the future mayor of New York on what to do about New York City crime and public safety, but um, we have it all in St. Louis. We have one of the highest murder rates, a negligible rule of law, I would say, in terms of just mm-hmm. stop signs, stop lights, speed limits, none of that um, has anything. And and what we've done, what what I think we've done mostly is um, give police officers raises and change where they have to live. So very curious to see, to have you tell me and discuss uh, more with smart ideas about what we can do other than just throwing money at the problem. You have four, four basic yes that yeah that help New York yes thank you, you. want to just um, run through those yeah sure um and I don't know you know we're looking at a very left-leaning um next mayor probably whomever it is uh coming into a climate where there's a lot of political pressure for de-policing for a kind of anti-police stance or a revolutionary look at policing without maybe the kind of more take a step back nuanced um understanding of some of the unintended consequences of de-policing, of defunding police, of um, putting in place, uh, tearing down things that have worked in the past to do things that are untested. Um, but uh, Before you start, let me just say for your cred with the uh, listeners, you were with the NYPD for five years. Yes. Mm-hmm. You're not just uh, from an ivory tower academically looking at this to say, this is what you need to do. You've been there. Yes. Um, I mean, I was a, a, not a uniform officer as a civilian working um, with detectives uh, as a senior uh, intelligence analyst, uh, looking mostly at counterterrorism um, cases, some criminal cases as well. Um, it was a very gratifying experience and, and certainly gave me a lot of perspective um, to, to look at the, the issues right now. Um, sure. And also on, on uh, I feel very privileged to have had that look at the culture from inside a police department. Um, exactly. Yeah, I think in particular working in intelligence, you know, in New York, it's such a diverse, it's a majority minority police department here. And there were a number of us who came into, you know, be intelligence analysts who came from like Ivy League school. Some people had spent a long time learning these uh, newly desirable languages to help with terrorism cases. And at NYPD, they just we have native speakers from everywhere in the world. So the detectives right. had these foreign language capabilities. I and mean, it was such a uniquely so diverse cool. environment. Yeah. Right. So we will also have, or we have a newly elected mayor. And um, she also, I mean, it's, it's priority number one for her will be uh, crime. And so, I mean, you know, I think nationally, when people think St. Louis, unfortunately, we're very closely associated with crime. Detroit, a crime, New York, you know what I mean? So I'm sure it's 
like number one on her to-do list. But like you said, similarly, uh, this question of do we defund the police? How do we de-escalate the riots that happen all the time? What do we do about people who want to protest, but it gets violent? Um, these are problematic for people wanting to move to St. Louis or live in New York, right? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one of the things that we had in mind in writing this uh, mayoral playbook, well, so our, our four recommendations on yeah. policing and public safety were part of a larger Manhattan Institute project called New York City Reborn that's looking at different policy areas and trying to um, be smart and creative and and figure out what the best policies are for the city to, to help us get back on our feet after the pandemic and to yeah. prosper in general, because certainly New York was very hard hit. The city was very hard hit by the pandemic and people, everyone who could get out basically got out. And a lot of them are working remotely now or they look at the crime in New York and they say, um, where's it? <laughs> is, that, is it worth it? Do I want to get pushed into the subway tracks? Um, so uh, that was the the context in which we. So this um, is a component of a larger plan. A larger plan um, from Manhattan Institute, um, and uh, so so to talk about the process, we we had a number of meetings with um, practitioners and scholars and people who are looking at policing to, to ask, well, what, if you had to pick one really um, uh, important issue in policing that you feel like if you had to pick one, um, what would it be? And then we kind of organized um, organized those top of mind priorities uh, into these four categories that- You can um, pick this one, right? Right, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> Too much. We pick four. A new, a new insignia. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first, the first that we highlighted is uh, just increasing the ranks of police officers. It's a problem nationwide, and this year has seen just unprecedented, record-breaking levels of people leaving police departments. Not surprising. Uh, not surprising at all. Okay. And actually, it's been I, something that informs our work a lot is talking to practitioners, talking to the, the heads of departments, both in events we've had with commissioners and chiefs and but also with just high-level people that are working on these issues on the ground because you get such a different sense of when the rubber hits the road, what are you actually seeing? Um, you know, as a, as a person that's been doing this for 20, 30 years and, and cares a lot about it. Um, and so many of the people are, are leaving or are, you know, telling their nephews not to become cops or, you know, thought they'd stay a lot longer and aren't because it's just... Why? It's it's so unpleasant, uh, you know. Right. You, especially you put so much into being a police officer. You're, it's risky. You're you're just you're dealing with people all the time. Dealing sure. with people's hard. Um, you're dealing with crime and grief and, um, and people's livelihoods and and trying to protect them. And you know, it's first of all, a lot of people have felt physically in danger. And um, someone that I that I worked with before was thrown through a glass window during the protests. I mean, oh you, you know, who, who wants that? No. Um, and, and then high profile cases across the nation, which, you know, this is, I think to me, uh, part and parcel of I mean, this like spreads across lots of areas, but with the internet and the video, what like, uh, somebody, a, a problem that happens far away from you feels like it happened in your community. So we mm -hmm. have, you know, tragic cases across the country, but they feel to everybody like they happen in their community. So then they don't trust their own police officers because they feel like, uh, you know, it's going to be Derek Chauvin who shows up. Don't know. 
we obviously have a, I don't know, we didn't start this, but Ferguson was a big part of the beginning of this, right? And so I understand how hard it must be to be a police officer and feel like you're going out there to try to protect people who uh, don't like you now. Yeah, I mean, the the level of feeling... I mean, I think most police are hardened to the idea that most people aren't excited, even even law abiding, you know, friendlies aren't excited necessarily to see police officers, but to feel physically at risk. And also that, you know, if you're in a situation where that gets out of control or, you know, you have to use force, even if it's 100 percent legitimate in every way, you know, your family is going to be targeted. Your people are going to come after you in a very personal way. And that's, that's scary. That's your life. You know, is it, is it worth it for what you make as a police officer and, and the, and the hard work that comes with it? Um, So how do we, what you have said, not just to have more, but to have a higher quality in the police ranks, like to try to fill open positions with people with at least college degrees. As, as one possible model to try to bring in more people and more people that will, obviously you want to have the, the most um, competent, intelligent, compassionate people as police officers. And as it becomes harder and harder to recruit and retain people, um, just trying to find models that will incentivize qualified people to come on and to feel like there's a future for them in the police department where they can grow, where they can be developing personally and professionally and uh, taking on interesting new tasks. Um, so one model that we're, we've talked about is um, trying to create something more like an officer model, like uh, in the military where you can come on, you know, if you have a certain degree of education, come on with a, a little bit more of a professional track insured. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly at NYPD and other places, there are a lot of opportunities once you're on board for, um, for educational advancement, um, which is great. And we ask, like, just out of curiosity, do you think police unions work against that? Do they like this? Like people can come in at different places. I don't know uh, explicitly what has been said by police unions about various, you know, uh, um, about incentives to come on with higher education. Um, You know, there's you certainly don't need to have uh, a certain there. There's a level of education, uh, academic achievement that you don't need to be a police officer and to be an incredibly intelligent police officer and and skilled. There's a lot of factors in people's lives that might, uh, you know, you're you're not you're you have a family, you want to be working. You know, there's a lot of reasons to not go after an extra degree. That doesn't mean you don't have sure, the, sure. The, the the faculties for it. Um, but uh, but there's, you know, studies have shown that the higher degree of education, there's a, a, a lesser uh, correlation to use of force. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of officers say that, that as an officer going back to school where you're mixed in with a population of people who are not police officers um, is just a good, besides the academic uh, advancement um, and legal, you know, have a greater understanding of legal policy, whatever it is, whatever it is you study, you know, you're, you're sitting next to people who aren't cops, you're sitting just next reality to check. just a reality check, you know, get out of the, the bubble of the mm-hmm. police world to whatever extent cops end up living in it, you know, and, and it's, it's good for them. It's good for the people around them to just have that engagement, um, mm-hmm. which is such a big part, I think of, of a lot of the issues right now is a lack of just engagement. Yeah. Well, which brings me to your next point, which is community policing. Is that like beat cops or like 
increasing the contact that police officers have with their community? Yeah, it's it's um, police being out and about in their community, having as many like pleasant, normal interactions as possible, just being there. I mean, there's a lot of studies about the enormous deterrent effect of cops, just having cops around the deterrent effect on crime. And obviously, we all prefer to deter crime than to be reacting to it um, so many levels. Um, and also because it, it creates a, a relationship with the community around around the police officer. You know, you want you want them to know who who it is they're policing, who is who's someone that's always there, who's someone who's new or acting erratically for the first time, who's um, you want people to know who their officer is if something happens um, and have a relationship of trust uh, already established. Um, so that's like keeping police officers on the same beat and not moving them all around the city for different shifts, like keeping them in the same area or? Uh, it's it's a number of different things. So having having police have a relationship with with the neighborhood they're in, having them, you know, out of their cars, walking around, feeling comfortable to engage with people on a, you know, at a not a uh, invasive level, but just kind of be present. You know, there there's a big push to have police be less present. Um, what do you mean? Uh, you know, a, a charge that police over police where they're mm -hmm. they're too much around. It's it's a um, it's an imposition on on a neighborhood. But of course, police are more present in, say, high crime neighborhoods because that's where there are more calls to service. That's mm -hmm. where the deterrent effect is more needed. That's where, you know, there there's just more incidents to respond to. Um, but the more police are are actively walking around and engaged and um, and empowered and encouraged to, to, if they see something to just go and, and check it out, you know, Hey, what do you, you know, what are you up to? Like, there's, there's a lot of ways for cops to engage that aren't, um, aggressive. Well, uh, this is a random question, but like, what about what they're wearing and carrying? Is that something that with community policing, I know we've seen a lot of, um, police departments sort of ramping up to where they're military style garb and what they're carrying, they have tanks, you know what I mean, which feels uh, like it's not helpful for the communities to feel like they're, you know, actually at war with this group. But, right. but then again, I can understand the police officer not feeling safe walking around a high crime neighborhood unless that they, you know, were wearing completely protective gear. But that just comes to like, you know, the old police shows on TV where uh -huh. they just walked around checking <laughs> on everybody and they knew who the people were. That seems idyllic, but um some sort of middle ground there, I think, is absolutely smart to just have them know the neighborhoods and have them be able to sense when something's going wrong. Yeah. And and as to the, you know, the militarization of a lot of the equipment, um, sorry for my phone ringing in the background. Um, uh, a lot of that is really deployed in areas where, you know, there's a risk of terrorism. There's a risk of something where you want people to know that this isn't going to be something easy to do, that there, there's it has an enormous deterrent effect. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the police that are dressed that way almost never use those uh, those weapons. I mean, it's for the amount of deterrent effect and and security that it provides and a sense that, you know, I you know, when I especially having worked in counterterrorism, so always a little bit having uh, having an eye to where there might be a terrorist threat. You know, right. walking around Grand Central Station in Manhattan, where there are, do tend to be people in, you know, full, very militarized looking um, um, equipment, 
and weaponry, um, you know, you, you feel safer as a citizen. Like this is where something could happen. Eh, they're here, you know, and and actually they're here. Probably something is not going to happen. Um, so even though I, I completely understand the, you know, Banksy-esque uh, desire to not have people that look like it's a war zone in your neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of policing <clears throat> comes down to trying to be the smartest and most fair and just in, in, in deterring crime and in understanding where there's a threat and responding to it in the way that's the best for the most people. And, um, uh, you know, the the yuckiness of having someone with a large gun in certain places in the city to the, the amount of safety it provides people to live their lives, to do their, their, to do business and to prevent something actually happening. You know, that that's what makes good True. policy is, is yeah. analyzing what, what's on both sides of that and, and deciding what makes sense. Um, so the third one I'm very interested in, which is this, we talked about a little bit, Mm -hmm. just this mis mistrust of police right like what how what do you do to address you say cynicism but in minority communities but i think you know the number of uh black people who, who call the police versus the number of white people who call the police like there's a lot less trust there that the police are going to come and help yeah and and you were saying about the effect the impact of you know a viral video that has on people and it's it's huge um and i think we we mentioned in the report um, studies of the, the, there's a greatly reduced rate, uh, which black people will feel comfortable calling 911 after there's been a, a, a viral video of police use of force. Um, and it's, you know, it's, 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 um, deleterious because you, you want people to feel comfortable calling 911. You want people to know that they're, um, that, that they can be safe, that they can call on people to help them because that's that's the most important thing. Um, and there's so much misperception in the country about the, the numbers of police use of force, the the number of... Do you um, mean we think it's higher than it actually is? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, there was a, a study in the last few months um, of, you know, people's perception of like you know, how many unarmed black men are, are killed by the police every year? Um, obviously any is too many, but you know, there, and it, it breaks up very much along political lines, you know, how you affiliate politically in your perception, but, um, do you, you recall know, the numbers? Like, um, so the question, think? yeah, actually would I actually have it? Um, so the, the Washington post, um, you know, the, the database that they keep, which is the most respected one on number of police killings said that in 2019, the number was, I think 20, no, 13, 13. And, um, so people were asked, you know, do you think it's about 10? Do you think it's about a hundred? Do you think it's about a thousand, about 10,000 or more than 10,000? So among people who identified as moderates, uh, over 40% thought it was about a hundred and 16% um, thought it was about 10,000 or about 1,000. Wow. percent thought it was about 10,000. And um, about 3.5% thought it was more than 10,000. You know, which if you look, think about the country, that's a huge amount of people and those are moderates. So I won't, I won't bore you with the numbers on both sides, but by the time you get to people who identify as, as very liberal, you know, you're looking at... Um, 15% thought it was more than 10,000. And, and, and it's, it's a problem when then that affects what people want in terms of policies, it, both in terms of what they think makes sense as policy, but then also in, 
people's comfort in, in trusting the police and in in understanding that, you know, the the just the role that police play in people's lives. And um, so how uh, can we rebuild that trust? That is a great question. I think I think there's a few levels. So I think on the one hand, the more people understand what what the numbers actually look like, the better, because it doesn't it doesn't help anyone to have a skewed view of how violent the police are or, you know, there's such a narrative of the of like an intrinsic racism in police and people are so quick and people, you know, people and Congress people are so quick to say that this is a something that a police person does right or wrong was was uh, a racist, you know, inspired by racism when there's no evidence of that. And and as as satisfying as that might be as an explanation and as useful, um, you know, if there's no reason to think it's true, then you're you're undermining having a better conversation about police reform sure. and about, you know, if something if there's a police incident where something goes wrong. Well, let's think about, you know, why why was Derek Chauvin there if he had such poor judgment as a police officer and, you know, was so lacking in empathy? Like, why did that happen? Well, if you just say he's racist, then then how are you going to have a serious and there's no no um, nothing to back that up. So how are you going to have a real conversation about what what, uh, you know, what training and uh steps police go through to make sure that they're competent and compassionate and, you know, appropriate. Yeah, it can be kind of a lazy, lazy approach, right? Yeah, it can be lazy. It can, it can have, you know, political utility. It can, uh, and I think in a lot of ways it, it's, it's an easy way to put off more, more difficult and uncomfortable conversations about race and about why, um, you know, city by city, different demographics commit crimes at different rates. Um, which is certainly something worth talking about and exploring and um, being serious we, about. Yeah, we have a very, very hard red line in St. Louis. Like we have one road that cuts it north-south named Del Mar, and we have a Del Mar divide. And literally, the it sometimes feels like two different worlds, south and north of this road. And so People um, are afraid to go north, north of Del Mar. The police officers probably who patrol north of Del Mar, like it's just known as being a very dangerous area. And I, I've talked to other people. I've talked to people on podcasts. I talked to a head of school of a charter school that's almost on the Del Mar divide. He grew up there. And um, what do we do about this? And I, I just, it seems so hard to come to a solution when these things go back to redlining. I mean, they almost go back to a hundred years. Yeah, they go back 100 years. So how do we crawl out of that so that we, and I live very close to it. And so where I live, we hear shots fired on a regular basis, but police officers generally don't respond if we call, like three or four neighbors will call on the same set of shots fired <laughs> and uh, and they don't respond. And it's like very frustrating to me. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I know they're overworked and I know there's a ton of problems. And I think we have a thing in St. Louis where, or we did, you know, the Ferguson effect. It's actually called the Ferguson yeah, effect, which is that thing to be proud of there. <laughs> yeah, you know, they did not want to respond in case they did. And and we had a community meeting where the police officer who came said that they needed to have enough officers at headquarters to respond to protests. Like they were really just using the protests as, as a reason. But I think it was a general feeling of bad blood. It was just a general feeling of mistrust. 
And, um, you know, I, it's, it's confusing to me about how to break through that mm-hmm. because at the same time in my neighborhood, as I started this, you know, no one stops. It's very few people stop at stop signs. I have a one-way street on my commute. Everyone I work with has heard this a million times. I have a mile commute. I have a one-way street on my commute. Every time I take it, cars come towards me, two or three, without. That's terrifying. I've had a police. I mean, I don't go very fast, and we, there's almost enough room for two cars. But it's there's no general disrespect for the laws that exist, and, and they're not being enforced. I mean, I've had a police officer do it. But um, so then, and then what do you do with bigger crime? I, it's just... Uh, you know, I think a lot, I want to, I'm looking forward to reading the whole New York Reborn, because I think a lot about, we've talked a lot about Stony Institute, what can St. Louis do to be a city people want to move to, but if we don't get crime under control. Yeah. You, as a family, like you have a young one, you're not going to move to a city known for its crime. So right. building trust in the community. And I really actually really like your your last point, because I think this is as big a problem as St. Louis as, as it is everywhere, which is that, you know, when... I guess it was in the eighties when we closed most mental institutions and put people back on the street, we didn't really deal with that very well. So now we have people um, who probably need mental health services and aren't getting it and they commit a lot of crimes. How many people have been pushed on the subway in New York this year? Um, Let's see. It was 26 last year and now it's 26. And now it's it's already reaching a record for this year. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. Mental health, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, it's very, very, very much associated with severe mental illness. Um, so a lot of this call to defund the police that really, you know, gets people riled up on both sides, defund the police, I think is more like move the funds into um, mental health services. To some extent, but but often, you know, it's not necessarily the mental health services that are that are going to, to help the problem, which, I mean, I... Uh, for better or for worse, live right next to the neighborhood I grew up in. And I, you know, you can really feel the difference on the street. I mean, it's, it's tilting back toward, you know, the eighties worse. I mean, you can Uh, feel the amount of people with severe mental illness on the street is palpable. Um, and I actually have three little kids, so I'm constantly like Mm -hmm. wheeling the double stroller, you know, (laughs) out of the way. Um, and, uh, but I, uh, just to go back to what you were saying about the neighborhood divide, and one thing that um, we've ended up kind of talking a lot about this year is the, the disparate impact of a lot of the very drastic police reforms this year um, on the different neighborhoods in New York and, and how much it is the more high crime neighborhoods, the more vulnerable neighborhoods, the more you know minority neighborhoods, black neighborhoods, where the shootings are going up, where, and, and it's very, there's a lot of momentum to it where, the more people feel like, you know, there's not going to be police sort of around and no one's going to, no one's going to interfere with them. No one's going to ask them what they're doing. No one's going to notice if they seem to have a gun. It's, you know, the more people carry guns, the more people see that they're, you know, the other people are carrying guns, the more they're likely to bring their gun out with them. And the more likely some, if someone has a gun on them, it's much more likely that they're going to use it. And, and it's, it's escalation. So, the escalation is so palpable just and it's, the, it's all affecting. No, I think we can carry guns, conceal carry on public transportation, which means I'm not going to be taking public transportation. <laughs> we're just going to turn it into a shootout. Oh my gosh. You know? Yeah. It doesn't seem like the right solution, but you're right. There's weapons everywhere. My neighborhood for sure. And, and, and I, you know, I'm getting like, not immune to it, but certainly the frog in the boiling water where, you know, we have like nine carjackings in two weeks and it's like, oh, 
we heard shots fired now. We're like, eh, wasn't that, you know what I mean? The rolling gunfight on Delmar, the Delmar Divide a few weeks ago with 30 or 40 shots fired. And, you know, it's just my neighbor's like, do we live in, you know, um, Beirut? It's just it's horrible. We got to get a handle on it. But, but what I love, oh, I do want to talk a little bit more about the um, revamping the approach to mental illness and responding to calls yeah. that are probably mental health calls more than anything uh, with a different group of people, basically, right? Is that? Yeah. Um, so I guess there's two prongs there because one is the uh, call to have all response to mental health, you know, taken away from the police, which on the one hand would be great and would, you know, police don't, don't want to be dealing with, that's not what they're there for. Um, and especially since there was a, a specially designated um, unit within police to deal with mental health, which has been the, the funding for which has been taken away this year, but um, uh, which makes it that much thornier for police. The, the problem is that there isn't, there isn't uh, another body that can take over responding to as many calls. You know, I mean, it's tens of thousands of calls relating to mental illness. You know, how many mental health care professionals do we have and how many that are capable of responding if there's some indication of physical risk and violence? Um, and, you know, also like, the, you know, the calls come in at 3 a.m. They come in at uh, whenever sure. and always. And that's that's why it falls to police so often, because they are the, you know, they're the the agency that's always there and will always respond. Um, so, you know, it's I think as we as we try to strengthen these alternatives to police where we can, you know, to recognize that that in most cases, it's probably going to be compliments to police where the more you can have. Uh, you know, the more you can have a system where you can winnow, you can figure out which well, which are the calls to service about mental health that are not violent, where you could have someone that's not armed and trained to deal with violence respond. You know, um, how much could you have a, a mental health care professional with police officers there together? Yeah. Um, you know, but just to be smart about not saying, well, let's let's have someone else do with it. And, you know, well, who and also do we know that they're more accountable than than the police? Are they better trained than the police? You know, let's. Right. I doubt it. Depends, I guess, on who they're call who's who's making the call. Right. 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 Um, yeah. And in, and in New York, we've had uh, a lot of funding going toward like Thrive NYC and programs that are supposed to be dealing with mental health, but they don't necessarily deal with severely mentally ill and especially where they intersect with law enforcement and crime and public safety mm -hmm. and disorder. You know, it's uh, it's it's great to be the idea of funding, you know, having lines that people can call if they're feeling stressed or, you know, things. I mean, that's, that's very important. But we also need funding for the population that needs that is harder to deal with and and less appetizing for for I think for people to to confront as as something that you need to have a long term compassionate um, very hands-on, uh, program for, but, yeah. um, uh, but the, they have not been getting as much funding this year. Um, things like Kendra's law, where there are special courts and, and provisions for people mm -hmm. who are arrested and have, you know, severe mental health where they can not be incarcerated, but have to, they can stay in their communities, but they have to commit to some kind of outpatient care. Right. Um, like that, that's the kind of thing that we should be funding where, you know, there are people that you can't, they, they have trouble without any kind of assistance or supervision right. or accountability um, because of their illness. And, and 
it's not fair to them to to be saying, oh, just let them be. Don't or let them be, right. What do you think, um, have you been following across the nation these laws that are being considered in a lot of state legislatures to restrict the right, the ability to protest or to allow people to, like in Missouri, we were considering like a law that you might be able to run over a protester and not be held legally liable for doing that. I think Georgia, or there's another state, might not be Georgia, considering allowing you to shoot a protester. I mean, like there's a lot of anti-protesting laws. And Missouri did uh, pass a bill, although I don't think it's gonna pass both houses, where um, the first time you protest and you block traffic is a misdemeanor, the third time it's a felony. So they're trying to really restrict protesting. Do you think that will help or hurt? You know, I don't know as much about the legislation around protesting and and the different things that are being considered now. I feel like it's being targeted this year as a public safety issue. So we have this sort of omnibus bill. So we are in a ban chokeholds, can't defund the police more than 12%. The protester thing, you can conceal and carry in a church. I don't know why that's in there. But we have this sort of criminal uh, reform bill. Or, um, and I think in a lot of states are looking at this protesting thing. Now, of course, in St. Louis, we had the protest that went through the neighborhood where the McCloskeys live. And there was a question about whether they had a right to point guns at them or not. And I think they might be sort of trying to put that into law that you do have a right to put point a gun. I'm not sure. But it seems to me that um, that is a it has been an outlet. And I think if you try to restrict that, then it's going to cause more discord between the public and the right. I mean it's certainly a very um <clears throat> high risk, high <laughs> um you know, a very tense aspect of what's happening right now because uh, there's been so much damage done by by rioting that's come with protests. Um, Is New York City uh, a mess from that? I mean, Portland's a, uh, a medium mess. I mean, there, were, there was damage done to property. There were curfews for a little while, which is very, you know, very, very. novel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it's, I guess the the most important response by police is is to make sure they have the the highest degree of training for dealing with protests because it's mm-hmm. it's very difficult it's very tense it's very uh inflamed you know inflamed and mm-hmm. um unpredictable and so to have the training to work as a team which is so critical you know have that kind of level of communication which is very different than day-to-day policing mm-hmm. um to be very coordinated to um to make sure you have enough officers to be that are trained that you can be trading off at a certain amount of time because you get so exhausted, especially these protests can go on for days. You need someone to come on fresh who's not like yeah. frazzled and wiped out. Um, I think those are probably the most important things from the police side that you can do. Um, but also certainly as a, a kind of a public sentiment to, uh, and this goes a little outside policing policy to more the, the national conversation about policing, but, you know, to reinforce that destroying people's property is not, is not an okay response to, right. to anything. What, you know, right. These are innocent people and often people who, you know, if they're in a, in a neighborhood that's already a, a neighborhood that experiences high crime or is not a wealthy neighborhood, like all the more so they please don't d- destroy their business. Um, and, <laughs> and there tends to be so much violence you know, civilian on civilian violence during these 
events. Um, and that's completely unacceptable and completely so against the, the message of, you know, police reform and justice and fairness and um, right. nonviolence. So, uh, yeah, so I'm sorry, I don't have a better answer. No, that's fine. Well, speaking of defunding the police, I feel like you've got a lot of really smart ideas, but they do require resources. Like to defund the police right now would make it harder to staff up our police departments and make sure they have the training they need and to have this sort of like parallel mental health group, which I think is super smart. So it doesn't seem like the right time to take resources away from police departments. Would you agree or? I would definitely agree. I mean, especially you, you need to have a certain number of police to be effective. Um, you don't want police that are over, uh, you know, I guess sort of similar to the other point, but you know, you want to have enough police to do their job effectively and appropriately and, uh, you know, training, which the more training, the better, you know, especially yeah, certainly in New York, you know, firearms training, um, there, there are a number of things where it, it would be great if they had more time in academy to practice, you yeah. know, and to learn and to study. And for the most part, a lot of the, the teachers in, in academies are, um, are themselves, you know, they're, they're being taken away from whatever else it is that they do within the police department to come and, and train new people. And that's man hours, you know, there's yeah. no way to have training without spending some amount of money. Right. Um, and in the end, you know, when you're hoping that all this, I mean, we've been spending so much money in New York on like violence interrupters. Well, there's, there's very little accountability for violence interrupters. There's very What's little a violence data. interrupter. What you mean? Um, uh, like a former gang member, um, who, uh, is part of, uh, you know, a program that's come together to try and intervene when there's violence going on in a certain neighborhood, they go and they talk to okay. the kids in the neighborhood and, and it's, it's great, you know, and that's wonderful. And, and to the extent that they, uh, are beneficial, that's, you know, how, you know, that's tremendous. Like you want, you want a vibrant community and civil society and, you know, these people you want people to be having a positive impact on their own communities, but as a, um, alternative source of police funding or, you know, as something instead of police, well, there, you know, you can't count on it. If you're having an issue in the middle of the night, you're going to call a violence interrupter. And, and even by the very nature of a lot of what they do, you can't know who they spoke to. There's no way to measure what they prevented or how they ameliorated mm -hmm. problems. So, you know, I'm afraid in, that a lot of the, in addition to the police, yeah, great. In addition to, you know, why not? I mean, certainly, um, certainly. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the defund calls to defund are very utopian in their thinking about what will happen if there's no law enforcement, um, right. no law enforcement, either presence or authority. Um, and it would be fantastic if we didn't need uh, agencies whose core mission it is to, uh, you know, who we give this authority as the citizens they represent to, to um, use physical force where necessary to protect um, keep us safe. the laws. Yeah, keep us safe on our streets. So, um, uh, you know, the rubber will eventually hit the road with, you know, with defund and with taking away, um, you know, I, I think here in New York, it might, again, you know, have to be this cycle of, um, 
things getting bad enough, like the, yeah. the, the wrong tourist getting, yeah. you know, hatcheted up or something, yeah. you know, some, yeah. something that just catches the popular imagination of people say too far, you That's know, I, I, I think it's very generational. Also people grew up. I mean, here. Times Square used to be a disaster and then Times Square became like FAO Schwartz. Exactly. Square is going to go back to being a disaster again. <laughs> I got I got my <laughs> fake ID in Times Square when I was in high school, <laughs> you know, and then yeah. Giuliani came and I was like, oh, I guess I can't use this anymore. <laughs> that's right. I mean, you got to give them credit for cleaning it up for sure. Um, that's right. I mean, we talked for a little bit before we started this about the movement for restorative justice in schools, which is one of those things that I, I support. And it makes a lot of sense to not suspend or expel students and keep them in school to the extent that you can, but if they're dangerous and if they bring weapons, this is where it got too far. And then the schools became unsafe and teachers didn't feel safe. And even students who brought weapons couldn't be dealt with properly because we were trying to keep everything within restorative justice. And there are some school districts that have done it and they it failed. And now they're back to like, you know, applying common sense to these situations. And I think you're right, we might get there with policing. Um, so, regardless of who the new mayor is, and I know we started this off this way, I hate to do this to you, but of the four, which one do you think, if you could <laughs> wave your magic wand and get one? Oh, of these, oh, I thought you meant of like a, out of a field of candidates, who would I? Oh, no, no, no. Mean of these, um, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> oh my gosh. Out of these four, so. Like, I don't know, I don't. That's rebuild the police ranks and try to rebuild them with people that have more education and training is one. The other was um, to sort of return to community policing and public order and and improving quality of life. The third was to try to rebuild trust and get rid of the cynicism around between the police and the public. Stop me if I'm doing this wrong. Then the last is to um, to like change how we address the mental health issues that are often treated as crime. Okay, I think I think if I had to pick, I'd go with number two, which is community policing, because yeah. it kind of gets at a lot of those things. And I think it, it was so enormous in the the turnaround in New York. Um, you know, just going back to the perception of police and their use of force. Um, you know, there were like two hundred plus. Uh, police shootings in like the late seventies, you know, in a given year. And, and, you know, I don't know, 2019, there were like 23, you know, and it was just down, 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 you know, you, there's so much about that, that came about by, by people saying, you know, we should encourage cops to get out of their car and walk around. Like that's, sure. that's the, that's a big part of their job is just being there and walking around and, you know, being proactive. If they see something that looks hinky, go, you know, just say, like, check it out, you know? Yeah. Um, don't DC wait for it to that. do a 911 call. Yeah, I think DC returned to community policing and their murder rates are like most places, other than within the last year, most places, all of the violent crime rates are way down. I don't think people believe that. Like if you look at violent crime data, everything is a big downward sloping line from the 60s and 70s till now way down okay the last year or two it's gotten bad and i can't deny that st louis feels unsafe but generally speaking violent crime since the 70s is all the way down yeah in i i think 1990 there were like 2292 i want to say somewhere around there um homicides and you know 
prior to last year, there were, it was in the, you know, there was 200 and something. I in New York? In New in sorry, in New York City. Yeah. That's yeah. And DC too, the numbers are similar. Lives. Way, way down, which is great. Um, yeah. Especially, I think the perception is not that. The perception is not that. But especially in New York, for the last decade, 95% of shooting victims are Black or Hispanic. So if you think about like that many, just that many lives, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's, Anyway, so I would choose community policing because okay. I think it also gets at the, the cynicism problem um, mm -hmm. because, you know, so much of trust just comes with familiarity and, and just seeing people around, seeing that they're there when you need them and not only when you're, uh, you know, at somehow, you know, in, in a position of defense or, you know, feeling like a suspect or whatever it is. They're not just there after something happens. They're there for you for, you know, whenever they're, there are people too, you know, they're, they're majority minority and they're, you know, they're, they're police officers by and large because they want to make a difference in people's right. lives and keep them safe. And so I think the cynicism, a lot of that, and I think it's been exacerbated by the pandemic where we're sort of not interacting with each other on the same level. Right. Um, right. But I think so much of it is just, you know, be there, like just be present, be around, have interact. You know, I think that's the, and I think, you know, since I'm saying number two as a way to deal with all, all of the, all four that we suggest, you know, for mental illness too, the more that, the more that there are people there who see who's on the streets, who sees the kind of help they need, you know, who's in some way accountable, or at least a, a source of information about those people, you know, the better a lot of the most tragic um, incidents that deal with that um, severely mentally ill are when there's someone that the whole community knows, yeah, he just rounds around naked with a machete, but he does that every Tuesday, you know, <laughs> and you right. have a cop that comes in and doesn't know it and perceives a very real physical danger that the people around that person ends up shooting them, you know, but it mm -hmm. could have been prevented if they were someone that just knew, yeah, that's, that's Jeff. That's crazy Jim, right? Yeah. Um, that's, that's great. I hope that uh, whoever is elected, they pay attention to what you guys are putting out. I think it's smart stuff. Thanks. And I think a lot of our cities need smart thinking. So um, I'll certainly be paying attention to it. And I really appreciate the, taking the time to talk to me today. It's fascinating. Oh, well, thanks, Susan. Thank you so much for having me and for, for discussing these things, discussing our, our, um, our report. I appreciate it. Sure. And, I, and I invite you know anyone who's interested to, to visit the policing and public safety um, page at Manhattan Institute. Um, see the other work that we've done, um, a lot of data-driven reports. There's a lot that we're working on right now. Um, and we have, you know, videos of our events with practitioners and, and talking about some of these, some of these issues. So that's great. I can't wait. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org. <laughs>